You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us today on this episode. We're going to be discussing the physical, long-term, and late effects of pediatric treatment, including fertility considerations, strategies to support the survivor for psychosocial and cognitive effects, following a survivorship care plan, symptom monitoring and management, and barriers to follow-up care. And I have to say, what a pleasure. We're joined today by Dr. Kevin Effinger, who is a family physician and professor in the Department of Medicine, a member of the Duke Cancer Institute, the founding director of the Duke Cancer Institute Center for Onco Primary Care, and director of the DCI Supportive Care and Survivorship Center at Duke, and truly one of the most prominent people in cancer survivorship. So what an honor. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate the chance to visit. So it's a little hard to know where to start, but you know what? I'd be sort of interested in looking at your perspective on the survivorship field. Where did it arise out of? When did it arise? And then in terms of pediatric survivorship, so sort of the historical view would be great. Most definitely. I think many people, when they think of survivorship, they go back to the Institute of Medicine report that was released at the end of 2005, early 2006, focus on survivors of adult cancer. And they often think of that as the timeframe when survivorship really hit the map. But in fact, in pediatrics, the first survivorship programs were started almost 40 years ago in the mid 1980s, late 1980s. I was at UT Southwestern in the early 1990s, and we started our program for adult survivors of pediatric cancer in 1994. So we've been going at this for for some time. So I guess in a sense, it reflects the fact that thankfully in the probably the late 60s, we started curing more people and probably at the same time starting to see some of the late and long-term effects. That sound about right? Most definitely. I often use one of my model examples, a patient I took care of when I was at Sloan Kettering, who was diagnosed in 1960 at the age of six with a Wilms tumor. And her pathology report was by Dr. Sidney Farber, Mm -hmm. known to many of us. Her uh, treating chemotherapist, as they were called at that time, was Audrey Evans, a very notable figure in, in the advancement of chemotherapy. She's treated with dactinomycin. And then Dr. Dan DiAngio, one of the pioneers of radiation oncology, treated her with radiation to the whole lung, to the um, the full abdomen, and then to the pelvis. And so that's a great example. She is still living and thriving after a diagnosis in 1960. Uh, that's on the early side. And our Wilms tumor were some of our early success stories. And then in the 1970s and 80s, as you already alluded to, there was much progress made in uh, the treatment by both our pediatric oncologists as well as our radiation oncologists and our surgeons in uh, advancing the care of pediatric uh, cancer. 
leading really the way for a lot of our adult cancers. Clinical trials were developed in the pediatric uh, arena and the ability to do sophisticated randomizations and understand how you could push care, how you can improve your cure while decreasing the cost of that care, cost in terms of late effects, physical, emotional, et cetera. So I'd love to get a sort of a broad view of the following issue. You know, we treat, thankfully, more and more patients with curative intent, especially with in pediatric cancer and adult cancers too. And we look, at least I tend to look at cancer survivorship as different groups. Some cancer survivors have late and long-term effects. Some, I would, at least my own view would be to say, are cancer-free and free of cancer, that really they're in remission and they really don't have the late and long-term effects that we perceive. Can you share with us in pediatrics and then also in adults, do you have a sense of the breakdown of that? How many children who got treated uh, for these very serious cancers are now cancer-free and free of cancer? They're really living pretty normal lives. It's a great question. We actually presented data last week, earlier this week, at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, where we've categorized the risk of pediatric cancer survivors into a high-risk, intermediate-risk, and low-risk for late effects, which would include heart disease, lung disease, infertility, second or third cancers, things of that nature. And it's based upon their treatment exposures. What do they have? Do they have any uh, certain types of chemotherapy, including an anthracycline or an alkylator? Do they have radiation? If so, what fields were included in the doses on that? And that really drives the likelihood of developing a late effect. I often tell my patients, that they can think of themselves as almost a stack of papers together, the bases, their genetics, what they inherited from their mother and father and predicting their uh, longevity and problems that they might encounter. And then we put on top of that the cancer and the cancer therapy and the treatment exposures and how that interacts. And then the next layer of that is our lifestyle behaviors. How active am I? What's my diet like? Do I smoke? Do I do other things that might be risky behaviors? And then the last layer of that is what comorbidities do I develop as I age? Do I develop high blood pressure or cholesterol problems that I might have already developed anyway, apart from the cancer, cancer therapy, but how those four things, how those four pages, if you will, all interact. And that's really what uh, gives us a sense of our risk stratification and our care should be focused upon those risks. There certainly is a important population of patients that are at low risk that will not likely have any problems as they age. There are some patients that are high risk but never encounter a problem. The patient that I mentioned a moment ago, she was treated with radiation basically from the neck to the mid-thigh. Yep. A fair-skinned individual and has never had a basal cell cancer, which is quite surprising. So for whatever reason, nor any other second cancers, which we might really see following the radiation. So we can stratify and predict people's risk and decide upon the monitoring that they might need from that. But even people that are at high risk can do quite well, and people that are at low risk sometimes have things that occur that we didn't expect. So I have not been able to find data in the adult world, but I'd be interested in the pediatric world. 
Again, do you have a sense, is it, I'm going to exaggerate here, is it 70% of children treated, let's say, for childhood leukemia? And I realize that's different than solid tumors, but are the majority suffering? Are there major problems that they're facing, major morbidity and mortality later on? Or is the, you get a sense the majority doing quite well? Again, what's the landscape? It's a great question. And I think the key term is suffering. A wise clinician in my training told me the difference between pain and suffering is suffering is when you hurt and you don't know why. And pain is when you hurt and you have a reason. And I think that that's part of the understanding of our survivors. I have some of my survivors that I have followed for years that have had four or five cancers, perhaps heart disease at a young age, and yet they're thriving. Mm -hmm. They're productive. They're very happy. They're doing well, despite many things. And I think it's a recognition of what the cost it took to get them, the cure of the cancer, and then how we follow or manage them. We also see in the adult world that our emotional stress is not necessarily related to our stage of disease. So a woman with ductal carcinoma in situ, which is essentially fully curable, may have emotional impact from that cancer diagnosis that is paralyzing in contrast to a woman that might have metastatic disease diagnosed 15 years ago and is doing well. So we always recognize that each individual interprets their journey, interprets their cancer in a different way, and we need to be attentive to that. Yeah, absolutely. Give us a perspective, if you would, in terms of, again, when you're seeing a adult survivor of pediatric cancer, which I know is one of your interests and uh, your expertise, what are some of the, the more common late and long-term effects that you're looking for and that you see? You know, it's interesting. When I see my patients, I'm thinking heart disease and second cancers, and they come in thinking, my body's been changed. I look at my body differently, or they have questions about fertility or gonadal function. So always trying to focus in on their most important questions and making sure that I address those. The biggest factor that promoted cures for many of our cancers, including Hodgkin lymphoma or rare cancers like retinoblastoma, was radiation. Radiation has given me the pleasure of getting to take care of many patients, but it also causes many of the late effects that I see. And our radiation oncologists have been tremendous in this field and understanding it and trying to deliver radiation to smaller and smaller areas, really focusing on the tumor and trying to prevent damage to the normal tissues. But radiation is really the driver for much of what I see. And the late effects that I see are in the radiation field. Yeah. So if the kid is irradiated uh, to the whole brain for a medulloblastoma, I see cognitive dysfunction or endocrinopathies on that. If instead it's to the chest area, a woman treated with radiation to the chest area for Hodgkin lymphoma or for some of her other cancers has a risk of breast cancer that's actually equivalent to or a little bit higher than that of a BRCA1 gene mutation carrier. Wow. So we start screening those women at a very young age, or the heart might be included in that area. So we look at both coronary artery disease that can occur at a young age, or having left ventricular dysfunction, things of that nature. If instead it's the abdomen or the pelvis that's included, I'm thinking colon cancer. I'm thinking the potential of other tumors in that site. I'm thinking of renal dysfunction. 
So it really depends upon the area that uh, the body that is irradiated. Our other two big classes of culprits, again, that saved many of the cancers we, we wanted cured are our anthracyclines and alkylators. We use an anthracycline such as doxorubicin or adriamycin in about 50% of kids treated today. It still is a mainstay, a backbone of therapy. And yet we've recognized that this can cause a cardiomyopathy where these patients may end up having heart failure 20 or 30 years down the line. Sometimes I, when I talk with my patients, I tell them some of the things that we see occur early, but some of the things occur three decades later. And we need to be able to monitor, we need to be able to prevent to the best of our ability. The second group that I mention are alkylators. And alkylators are notorious for causing a gonadal dysfunction, either ovarian failure or premature menopause or in men uh, having infertility. And so again, whatever we can do, both in terms of fertility preservation, fertility restoration, or family building in our individuals that are infertile is important. So it's really driven by our treatment exposures. And the Children's Oncology Group, uh, Late Effects Committee, led by Melissa Hudson and Wendy Landier, have had a set of guidelines that have been posted online since 2003. You can Google survivorshipguidelines.org and pull that up. And it's through the Children's Oncology Group website, and it's been updated on a periodic basis. And it really goes through all of the known late effects based upon treatment exposures and what the current recommendations are for surveillance or screening, who's at risk, and some other considerations, in addition to a wealth of patient education forms to kind of describe this to our patients in a more jargon-free manner, if you will. So along the line of guidelines, and you and I were talking a little bit before this discussion about the primary care provider, whether it be uh, a family physician, a pediatrician, a uh, internal medicine doctor who's seeing their, I'll call them regular patients or non-cancer survivors, and then has a group of cancer survivors treated for multiple different cancers and multiple different ages. What would you recommend in terms of how does that provider do the best job possible in taking care of that group of patients? That's probably the single most important issue that we face in pediatric cancer survivorship today, both nationally and internationally. This question comes up a good bit. And I mentioned a moment ago in our conversation prior to the recording that St. Jude has a meeting coming up next week led by Melissa Hudson and Wendy Landier to look at the dissemination of these guidelines. From a primary care provider's perspective, Roughly a typical panel of a PCP might include three to five pediatric cancer survivors. One is in their 20s, one's in their 30s, one's in their 40s. One had leukemia, one had Hodgkin's, one had a brain tumor. One was treated in the 70s, one was treated in the 90s, one was treated in the 2000s. All different treatments. So you can imagine, quite heterogeneous. And so seeing one doesn't help you with the second. And one of the things that we have struggled with is we have excellent programs in the U.S., Canada, parts of Europe, Asia, et cetera, for pediatric cancer survivors in their pediatric years. 
but identifying how they can get the best care when they're in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, when most late effects are actually occurring, is more difficult. If you only have three to five pediatric cancer survivors in your primary care panel, they're all different, it's difficult to pay attention through CMA, reading an article. People aren't going to read an article on an N of one. And so what one of the things that I really emphasize is that we in the field of pediatric survivorship need to be the liaison. The Canadians have a wonderful set of terms for this knowledge translation, knowledge transfer. I need to translate all of the jargon um, embedded information of their treatment exposure. It doesn't help to know that the patient had XRT. I needed to know what area was irradiated with what dose and then translate that information to meaningful information for the PCP and transfer it saying these are the two things that they need. A woman was treated for Hodgkin lymphoma when she was 15. She has a high risk of breast cancer when she's 25 or 30. We recommend an annual breast MRI and a mammogram. That's straightforward. Our PCPs tell us time and time again, tell me what you want me to know in the first seven seconds of reading. In other words, don't send me a 17-page fax and bury the data there. Second thing is send it to me proximate to the visit if you can. So in our interventions, we actually try to do that. The third thing is don't just send it to me, send it to my clinical manager. They'll make sure that we address it, that we get it into the chart in the appropriate way. In the old-fashioned way, paper charts, and of course, more recently, our electronic health records on that. And so that's how we try to communicate. And unfortunately, sometimes it's old-fashioned faxes or within a system. Part of what we're trying to do at Duke is have an interface with our primary care providers across the entire continuum of cancer care. So that includes prevention, screening, managing comorbidities on therapy or uh, expedited referrals, survivorship or chronic cancer care or end of life. And you can imagine the vast majority of that interfaces with our adult cancers. But that gives you now the template that gives you the avenues to be able to do that, where you pull your pediatric survivor population into it too. I communicate on a regular basis with our Duke primary care providers or primary care providers outside of the network saying, I'm following a Hodgkin lymphoma patient or a patient had osteosarcoma or perhaps a kid that had a retinoblastoma treated 35 years ago. And these are the two or three things that they're most at risk for, and this is the two or three tests that they need. The last thing that I'll add is educating the patients is a, a interesting topic. If it's an adult cancer, so let's say a woman diagnosed at the age of 40 for breast cancer, I can walk through her treatment with her, and then I can reiterate that with different visits. But imagine instead a 10-year-old that's diagnosed with an osteosarcoma. They go through their treatment, but the pediatric oncologist and the surgeon will go over some information with the patient and the family. But you can imagine how that communication happens. 10-year-old that then becomes a 15-year-old that becomes a 20-year-old, what they remember, what they recall, what they understand is different. My experience, too, is when they get into their 20s and 30s, the parent often doesn't want to visit that. They want to be at the visit, 
They want to know that everything's okay, but they don't often communicate what they understood to be the risks when they went through the conversations. And whether or not the 25-year-old that had their cancer 15 years ago understands it, or if they get married or have a significant other, what their partner understands about that. So one of the things I think is, is essential for us is to really think through that educational process, both during their pediatric years, directed both to the survivor and to the parent or parents, but also really building upon that as they go into their young adult years on there. We have studied time and time again through the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study what patients remember as they get into their 20s and mm-hmm. 30s. And it's not a lot. <laughs> they know that they had chemotherapy, but they may not remember that it was anthracycline. They know that they had radiation, and they know they had it to their head or to their chest, but they often don't know if they had it to their abdomen. And that really affects what care we deliver. So the triad of communication between the pediatric cancer center, the patient, and the primary care provider is so important. So I want to ask you for, I'd like you to do a report card, if you would, for care plans, survivorship care plans. And I'm not asking about yours in particular, which I'm sure is well done because this is your life's work. But if you look at survivorship care plans in general, again, and let's switch now to adults, your experience with adults who were treated as adults. Broadly, are we as a field, as oncologists, primary care putting out, uh, do we deserve an A for these care plans? Do we deserve an F or something in between, both in terms of content, but also in terms of the two things you talked about, including transfer of knowledge? You know, the intention is good, and that gets an A. The delivery, the implementation gets a C or C plus. Yeah, I agree. The problem is we started out with almost 15 pages, summaries, through the 2005-2006 Institute of Medicine report. And Deb Mayer led an important effort through the American Society of Clinical Oncology to take that down to about two pages. But Deb and I and others would agree it's still oncology-facing. It includes information that the oncologist already knows, doesn't need to add into it, and is really essentially meaningless to a primary care provider. Melissa Hudson and I developed a one-pager years ago for a study supported through the Livestrong that I have continued to use, even in patients that have had three primaries. And it's one page, and it's really the nuts and bolts. If we don't have screening based upon the cumulative dose of a specific agent, I don't put it in. Mm-hmm. So I don't need their dose of vincristine because I don't base my recommendations on that dose. But I do have their dose of their doxorubicin. I do have their dose of radiation or at least the field of radiation that's included. And I have the basic things that we pay attention to. And then our key screening recommendations on there along with contact information. And we sit down and talk with our patients each visit about going through that and then what needs to be done, answering questions, and then continuing with the screening with that. I think where we have failed in that implementation project is, back to your observation, is some patients really have low risk. 
And we have to avoid over-medicalizing them. Mm -hmm. They're not going to have problems. They need to know that if they do have something, they reach out to us and let us know. And I always tell my patients, sometimes it may be related to your cancer therapy. Sometimes it may not. It's our job to sort through that, but don't hesitate to ask that question. And so if we set up our programs where we see all survivors, one size fits all, we get overwhelmed and we don't devote the resources we need to see of our high-risk patients that we've lost follow-up to. Yes. And that we really need to be able to either bring back or to communicate what they need. And so I think that's part of that implementation process of the survivorship care plan. It is simply a talking point, if you will a method in which we can communicate with patients about risk without overwhelming them and making sure that they understand and know what's what our game plan is and what their game plan is. I'll editorialize just for a minute, which is while I was at Dana-Farber, I did a study looking at what care was provided to cancer survivors who came for longer term visits. And there was always surveillance for a second for cancer, including a second malignancy. And there was always laboratory values, and there was always a physical exam. But the part that was very rare was any kind of healthcare education or wellness uh, promotion. And it reminds me of you were reflecting earlier about you know someone's genetics and someone's cancer and treatment and someone's comorbidities. But say a little bit more about lifestyle. Do you feel we can? Not only can we have an impact, but what's the best way to have an impact on those lifestyle factors? You know, as, as you and I know, lifestyles make a huge difference in risk. And, and I explain that to patients. There's some things we have control of and some things we don't. We don't have control of our genetics. We can thank our parents for that, both positive and negative. Right. We don't have control of the fact that we had cancer or the cancer therapy that we received. But we do have control of our lifestyle behaviors and they modify our risk substantially. Probably the classic example of this goes back to an old 1992 paper by Lois Travis when she was at the NCI looking at survivors of Hodgkin lymphoma. And she looked at the risk of having lung cancer. And if you had your radiation to your chest, you had an alkylating agent, and you smoked, your risk of lung cancer was synergistic to having any one of those three by themselves. We've shown the same thing with comorbidities in a paper that Greg Armstrong published in JCO from the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, where we showed that hypertension is a driver of heart failure in an individual that had anthracyclines. There's a synergy there. So we can control our lifestyles and we can control our comorbidities. If I picked the single most important lifestyle, obviously avoiding smoking. No question about it. That's a huge driver of a lot of the problems we see. Right. The second is simple walking. I give talks to survivorship groups, and I always say if I had a prescription I wrote for you that was a thing that you took once a day that reduced the risk of 17 different late effects that we know, second and third cancers, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera, and it had no known uh, side effects other than costing you time, would you take it? And the answer obviously is yes. That is simply walking 30 to 40 minutes, five to six days a week. 
meeting or exceeding the, the Surgeon General's recommendations for physical activity. That can be broken down into two 15-minute segments or three 10-minute segments. Simply on a regular basis, walking, a little bit of resistance training, adding into that, or whatever type of physical activity you like, whether that's yoga, swimming, a little jogging, a little bit of hoops, whatever makes a huge difference. Diet does impact things. If we picked a single diet that we like, it's the Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet has been studied in multiple groups of cancer survivors and has multiple beneficial effects in terms of prevention of future cancers as well as other late effects with that. So that's kind of that tiered approach. Don't smoke, or if you do, go through a smoking cessation. We have great programs for that. Be active. Eat a good diet. And above and beyond that, everything else is icing on the cake. All right. So I'm going to picture that prescription. It's a pretty simple one and a pretty effective one. Going through pediatric cancer, pretty obviously, is not just the child. It's really the whole family and the parents and the, uh, who are caregivers. So what's that experience like for them? And what's the role of survivorship care for the family? I'll mention what I mentioned a moment ago. Fear of uncertainty. We surveyed cancer survivors a number of years ago that were on average about 20 years out from their cancer, and 17% of them thought on a regular daily basis of their cancer coming back, despite the fact that they were cured of their cancer. But I think it really highlights the fears and uncertainty. And my patients that have multiple problems that don't understand it or not having screening for it, they say, when does the next shoe drop? I see adults, survivors of pediatric cancer, still struggling with some of the caregiver issues that they experience. So NKZAC did a beautiful set of papers back in the 90s and early 2000s looking at post-traumatic stress disorder and noticing that it was most apparent in the parents, especially in the mothers. And I see that in the 50-year-old that has a second cancer, their mother is the one most impacted. And so I think that it's key for us to understand the trauma that the parents or the family units, the siblings, went through and to be able to recognize that and address it. That goes back to just good medical care, being attentive to what's going on in the life of the cancer survivor and their family, their social network, who's having problems and issues on that, and being able to address those. But that's key, both in the short term, during and soon after therapy, but even in the long term. You would be surprised the number of my patients that tell me, as soon as I finish my visit with you, I go call my mom and just tell her everything's okay, even a 50-year-old. You know, we've talked some about late and long-term effects, the physical ones, but Share with us some of your experience in terms of the emotional and psychosocial fallout, the late and long-term effects in those aspects as well. We see the whole gamut. I often describe the way our wiring is in a bell-shaped curve distribution. There are some people that are very vigilant and others that are not at all some that are very risk-taking and others that are very risk-averse. And how cancer impacts our personality traits really informs the psychosocial problems that we may encounter. For example, it's been my observation that a lot of young adult males that went through cancer therapy 
as a pre-adolescent may go through a very rebellious time period and have very risk risk-taking behaviors, drinking, drugs, high-risk behavior with motorcycles, smoking, etc. And it takes the time to wash through that. And I've seen them come through that. But I think that that's important for us to be able to address. Conversely, I've seen people that really fall into a lower risk group, but they're absolutely paralyzed with fear of ever going through something like that. And that fear is important to understand and to address. One of the things that we've done at Duke is we have a tremendous cancer support program for patients not only going through therapy, but long-term survivors. That includes family therapists, counselors, social workers, and psychologists. And our psychologists teach cognitive behavioral therapy. And a lot of my patients really wrestle with uncertainty, fears of what happens next, how my body was changed through my cancer, becoming infertile and not knowing how that impacts my family. Having a different career trajectory than my peers, all those sort of things that impact my stressors, whether I feel overwhelmed by things, feel depressed, et cetera. And our psychologists are extremely good at tapping into that, teaching skills to be able to put those emotions into some sort of boundaries so it doesn't paralyze me, it doesn't overwhelm me. I can go by my daily life still experiencing those emotions, but I can get out of bed. I can do my job. I can thrive on there. So I'm a real believer in our psychologists or behavioral scientists or behavioral clinicians working in the space to address those issues. From the clinician standpoint, what my patients tell me time and time again is, I wish they just understand that while I look normal on the outside, I feel broken on the inside. And I wish they understood that I feel pretty fearful rather than rolling their eyes or not addressing the issues on there. And I think that that's a key message that we have, in particular to our primary care providers that sometimes may simply write in the problemless history of history of leukemia, history of Hodgkin's, and think that that's all said and done, and that chapter closed, but that chapter, in fact, will never close. Yeah, thank you. I think that's uh, such a wonderful point. And actually, for all of us as providers, and, and family members for that matter, too. So thank you. One last question about fertility. You feel like we as a field are doing a better job with fertility preservation. And even if we've made improvements, again, where are we at on the A, B, C, D, E, and F scale? Depending upon where we practice, anywhere from a B to maybe an A minus. We have good tools now for fertility preservation and education about fertility preservation. Now, sometimes because of the rapidity of what's going on with perhaps like a case of acute myelogenous leukemia, where we really need to get things moving quickly, we we just don't have the luxury on that. But both for males with sperm banking and females with ovarian cryopreservation, we have seen miracles. I've taken care of patients that cryopreserved an ovary 15 years ago and went on to deliver a healthy, uh, happy baby with that. Uh, So the technology is there. It's the key for us is to educate it to make sure that those services are available to patients and also understand fertility restoration. 
patient went through therapy, we weren't able to do any type of fertility preservation. But what are our options now? And those options are also changing with new technology. The last thing I'll say is that sometimes we don't have options for fertility preservation or restoration, but adoption or even surrogate pregnancies those can be so meaningful. And so making sure that our survivors understand the different options that they have. I think sometimes going through therapy, people think of things in, in black and white, 100% or 0%. I'm going to be infertile or it's not going to impact my fertility at all. And sometimes that's the way that the message is communicated as they go through therapy. And I think from a survivorship standpoint, it's important for us to be able to give them a good sense. We have good prediction tools now on fertility. There are great referral resources with our reproductive endocrinologists or urologists and thinking through our different options. But that is a huge issue. It is probably one of the top two or three issues of our cancer survivors. Can I have children? The last thing I'm going to say is one of the good news that we've had through the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study and through our, our collaborations with our European colleagues is when we look at the likelihood of a child born by a pediatric cancer survivor, so if it's a female going through the cancer therapy or through her male partner, what's the likelihood of that individual having a cancer? a congenital malformation, or some other problem. And by and large, apart from our germline mutations that are hereditable, there's very little. We have found that our cancer therapies do not impact the health of the babies. It certainly can impact whether or not somebody can get pregnant or carry a term pregnancy, but it doesn't impact the health of the baby. And I think that's good news that our survivors need to be able to understand, again, communicating that there are some very positives out there. So attending to the fertility, understanding whether or not they are infertile or what our options are, and also telling our patients that unasked question, that you can have a very healthy baby that can do quite well on there and make sure that they understand the issues with them. I actually want to take a minute or more to say thank you. This has been a wonderful opportunity to, to spend a little time with Dr. Kevin Effinger, who is really one of the leaders in the survivorship field. So Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for all the great work that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society does. I think we all owe them really a lot of appreciation for years and decades of commitment to patients with blood cancers living well beyond cancer, both in terms of years and in terms of quality of life. For our listeners, for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one -on -one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And finally, I want to encourage you to sign up to receive notification for future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. 
LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future podcasts and episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org ce. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. <laughs>